someone once told me time is a flat circle. If everything we've ever done or will do, we're gonna do over and over and over again. Michael. I'm Kelly. We're siblings, self-proclaimed armchair detectives, and your host for the Flat Circle podcast. Today, we will be discussing the mayhem, the confusion, the complexity, and the murder of Faith Hedgepeth. Okay, you say your friend is unconscious? He's unconscious. I just walked in the apartment, and there looks like there's blood okay, everywhere. Listen to okay, listen to me. Listen to me. Somebody's already You're sending me ambulance. Okay, I need to get some information from you, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna help. I'm gonna tell you how to help her. Okay. 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 How how old is your How old is she? She's nineteen. Okay. I don't know. I don't okay. want to touch her, but listen to me. Is is she breathing? I don't know. You need to check and see. Is she breathing? She. I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay, listen to me. There's blood everywhere. There's what? There's blood everywhere. Okay. I don't know what happened. So, the morning of September 8, 2012, at exactly 11 a.m., Karina Rosario and Marisol Rangel walked into the apartment that Karina shared with Faith. They called out to Faith. They didn't get a response back. Karina walked into the bedroom and found Faith laying on the bed crossways. She was half naked with a white t-shirt pulled up over her face. Blood sprayed on the wall. An empty rum bottle with blood on it was laying on the ground. And then at 11.01 a.m., Karina Rosario made that 911 call that we just heard. Wow. Um, you actually got me interested in this case because we were talking, I don't know what we were doing. I think we were talking true crime. Yeah. I can't recall. I think we were ta- discussing one of those episodes on Evil Lives Here. Uh, and then you were telling me about another case that you found interesting, mm. and it was this one with Faith Hedgepeth. And... Um, so I guess that I would have to ask you that question. What what drew you to Faith? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> basically, it, it's one of those cases that kind of sticks out. You, you get, you know, you get your normal murder cases where there's, you know, it seems like it's clear cut. But this one just seems so weird because, one, it's unsolved. I mean, that that's the first and foremost. And second, I mean, this kind of has, this kind of has comparisons to, um, Amanda, not be Amanda Knox case, um, you know, in that oh, murder. Yeah. But with that, with this case, this one has so many players and, yeah, and, 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 and Faith was so young. I mean, she was just a college kid and, you know, um, a lot of signs point to one particular person or two particular people. But that's not always, you know, well, you know, we you and I, we scour Reddit boards and Facebook, you know, Facebook and just to kind of see what everybody else has taken for me. It was just that everybody has their own theory of what happened. So. I yeah. want to get into it. I want to talk about who she was. I, I want to talk about the case and, you know, what we feel might have happened. 
Well, let's do that then. Let's let's pay homage to a life that was taken too soon. So Faith Hedgepath, a beautiful baby girl, was born on September 6th of 1992. Uh, she was a North Carolina girl through and through. She attended the University of North Carolina at Chapel, Chapel Hill. Um, she was part of the Haliwasaponi Native American tribe. Uh, her parents were divorced, but that didn't seem to really put um, like a crack in the family. The family is completely su- uh, su- completely supportive, completely close. And she was really close to both her mom and dad and her aunts and her uncles and her, her sister. Like she was close to the whole family. Yeah. Um, you know, when I saw pictures of Faith online, I mean, she's just a beautiful girl, you know, beautiful, gorgeous, curly hair, gorgeous eyes. And she just looked like a gentle soul, someone who was caring, empathetic and smart. She was a cheerleader. She was she was an extrovert. So she was doing all kinds of things. She was optimistic. And one of the things that I found even more endearing about her is her career goals was essentially to help people. Um, she really wanted to work with children. She wanted to be either a pediatrician or a teacher. Um, in fact, she and another friend before um, going to UNC, they had talked about what they wanted to do. And one of the things that they wanted to do is they wanted to get their degree in medicine, take the knowledge that they got from college, and then bring it back to their tribe to do some good in the community. Wow, that's amazing. Yep. Uh, Faith was studying biology at UNC, and at the time of her death, she was in her third year in college. And then also, she had planned to join UNC's Native American Alpha Pi Omega sorority mm. as well. So she was just a, a good person, yeah, um, like a it. young girl, and life definitely taken away far far too soon. Let's get back to discussing the case. I want to really let's let's break it down. Right on. Yeah, I agree. Let's uh let's get into it. Um okay, let's start where they were first at. September 6th, uh, 2012, 8 p.m. Faith Hedgepath and her roommate Karina Rosario went to the Davis Library on campus to study. It was reported that you know, at first Faith left the library for a short time and then she returned to pick Karina up. They officially left the library around 11:30 that night. Karina and Faith then went back to the residence and they were living in an apartment complex at the time called Hawthorne at the view. September 7th at 12 a.m. They arrived back at their apartment Uh, at 1230 a.m. Also on September 7th, 2012, Faith and Karina, they leave their apartment at 1230. They lock the door behind them. And they decided to blow off some steam. So they went to a popular nightclub called the Thrill Nightclub, or I guess the locals call it the Chapel Hill Thrill, uh, for a couple of hours of dancing and having fun. And it was reported that they arrived at the Thrill at approximately 12.40 a.m. And then at 2.06 a.m. on the same night, Karina wasn't feeling well. She told uh, told by police that um, she was sick to her stomach. So she and Faith left the nightclub at around 2.06 a.m. And then at 3 a.m., Faith and Karina returned to their apartment. So that's an hour between when they left and when they actually got to their apartment, even though they actually lived close. But we'll get to that later. A neighbor uh, noted noises, thumps coming from the apartment above hers, which happened to be Faith and Karina's apartment. Around this time, records show that someone assessed Faith's Facebook page as well. So keep that in mind. And then at 3.40 a.m. on September 7th, um, very early in the morning, Faith 
reportedly sent a text to Brandon Edwards to have him come over to their apartment. And at the same time, uh, Karina called Brandon. So Faith sent him a text. Karina called him. Brandon didn't answer. Um, so instead, Karina called Jordan McCrary, who is just this really hot uh, UNC soccer player. It was thought, I think, at the time that Jordan and Karina had kind of like a relationship going. Under an hour later at 4.25 a.m. on the same night, uh, Karina left the apartment and went for a ride with Jordan McCrary. And at that time, the door was left unlocked. Instead of locked is when they went for the club. When Rosario said she left Faith asleep in her bed. Faith was asleep. It's assumed from the timeline that someone snuck in and murdered Faith around 4.30. That's when police investigators assume that's when she was, when her life was taken. And then, of course, at uh, 11 a.m., Karina Rosario tried to call Faith to pick her up from her night with Jordan. However, Faith didn't answer the phone, of course. And so she then reached out to friend Marisol Rangel, who was also a very good friend of Faith Hedgepath, to pick her up and take her home. And then, of course, when she got home, called out to Faith, no answer. And then they found Faith in the murder scene. As my sister stated earlier, Faith was found partially nude. There was a lot of blood in the bedroom. She had suffered what appeared to be a severe head trauma. And that's what Lieutenant LaHue said the case. Um, he also went on to say Faith was wrapped partially in a comforter that had been located on the bed. There was some blood splatter throughout the bedroom as well, where the pillow might be. So let's talk about the potential suspects. Yeah, there is, you know, one of this... This is a complicated case. Yeah, yeah absolutely, sis. I mean, there was a lot that's kind of happening in this case. And like I said, it's very interesting because there's so many players. Let's let's talk about potential suspects. I could talk about the first one, and I'm looking at, you know, number one, the woman the, who made the call and somebody who knew... Faith the best was Karina Rosario. Now, Karina Rosario, she's a friend of Faith, but she's also a possible frenemy. Now, there has been some conflict between them and seeing how they were both interested and or dating the same guy, Brandon Edwards, at one point. So there was. Oh, yeah. Girl code totally broken. Yeah. Totally totally broken. broken, (laughs) Totally broken between these two. And it's uh, suspicious that in the voicemail that took place in the nightclub, which we will get to later, you will listen to a snippet about that, but and we will talk about this, but it's suspicious that in the voicemail that took place in the nightclub, there were two females. it, it, It sounded like when we go through. Uh, our favorite Reddit <laughs> and in those kind of boards that it appeared that it, it sounded like two females appeared to be fighting. Uh, they also left the club at 208 because Karina had a stomach ache, which apparently she recovered from because at some time Faith apparently sent a text message to Mr. Brandon Edwards. And Karina tried calling him around 425 as well. After no response back, she then called Mr. Jordan McCrary. Karina definitely looks suspicious. Now, I have Marisol Rangel on this list, but I really don't necessarily know how Marisol would fit in this story. And here's why. Because Marisol Rangel was actually a really good friend of Faith Hedgepath, potentially even a better friend of Faith or of Faith's than Karina Rosario, her roommate. So the other person on the list here would be Marisol Rangel. And I don't necessarily know that I think that she is a suspect per se. Um, but I do think that she could have possibly been involved as far as maybe potentially Karina's alibi, unknowingly Karina's alibi, if that makes sense. But from what I know is Marisol Rangel is another college student, a very good friend of Faith Hedgepath. The second person, of course, who may be an alibi would be uh, an unknowing alibi, I should say, would be Jordan McCrary, who he's, I don't even know that I really 
really look at him as a suspect either. I think he just happened to be a guy who could have been in the wrong place at the wrong time or could have been called upon to serve as someone's alibi. But anyways, he was a big time athlete, still is from what I know, very talented soccer player at UNC. He was friends with Karina Rosario and it was reported, like I think I mentioned earlier, that there was a possible like relationship between Jordan McCrary and Karina Rosario. You know, going into the other player in the case, which we've already talked about a little bit as, you know, the ex-boyfriend uh, of Faith's who also messed around with Karina Rosario is Brandon Edwards. Now, remember, if you, you know, looking back at the timeline at 340, Brandon gets a text allegedly from Faith that reads, hey, B, can you come over here, please? Uh, Rosario needs you more. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, please let her know you care. So uh, knowing that they maybe have thought of him in the past, but there is some kind of connection. And it seems like Rosario wanted to talk to Brandon. And for some reason, Faith was contacting him to talk to her. So there might have been something kind of crazy about that. Now, the biggest player in this case who people are pointing the finger at just as much as Rosario is Eric Takoy Jones. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this guy, every case that that every case you come across, you always see there's always one guy that sticks out above everybody else or one suspect. And sometimes almost a little, and I think it's a little too well, it's almost like perfect that he might be the murderer, but supposedly he was the abusive ex-boyfriend of Karina's Rosario. Keyword abusive. In the weeks leading up to Faith's death, they, uh, they had a relationship, but I guess it was pretty troubled leading up to Faith's murder between him and Karina. Eric uh, felt that Faith was getting in between the relationship between him and Karina uh, Eric was, like I said, abusive. And at some point, Karina had no a no contact restraining order taken out on him. Now, Faith was the one who encouraged Res- Karina Rosario to get the restraining order against him. Yes, um, she was doing what good friends do. Yeah. I mean, she wanted her girl being safe and she didn't want her girl being abused anymore um, and dealing with this, you know, physically and mental abuse that Eric DeCoy Jones put her through. So she encouraged her and she actually went with her to get the restraining order. Eric found out obviously, and he threatened faith after that for getting involved, post a cryptic message on Facebook, actually days after the murder. And he said, dear Lord, forgive me for all my sins and the sins I may commit today. Protect me from the girls who don't deserve me and the ones who wish me to dead today. Now, I've seen, I've actually went into this guy's Facebook a little bit and people have do those screenshots where they actually take things that they say and you go on Reddit and there's stuff. This guy seems like he's really dramatic. This guy was very (laughs) dramatic. He like left his heart. And, you know, one thing about Eric DeCoy Jones, it seemed like he was an attention getter and everything like I've seen on Twitter and I've seen on some of these, you know, on Facebook, it's always seems like, you know, when people do these like crazy, like attention seeking thirst kind of comments yeah he was he was definitely that guy so whether this was connected we don't know i personally read it off as he was looking for attention because he was getting a lot of attention at this point his name this was a national case so his his name was spread all across the country and this just amped it up you know and i I think he's an attention getter he was a you know, attention whore for sure. But anyways, the day after Faith was found dead, someone ca- had called up to the Chapel Hill Police Department and they said they were a former roommate of Faith. The former roommate stated that Hedgepath told her that Karina's boyfriend hated her 
and told her that he was going to kill her if Rosario didn't get back together with him. However, wow. Eric, yeah, and actually, however, Eric actually willing to he he was willing to cooperate with the police, and that to this day he has always cooperated. They took DNA samples from him, searched his car. I mean, they, anywhere he's lived, where he lived, he came, cleaned up, and no longer, you know, to this date, the police do not label him as a suspect or person of interest, but obviously he is required to keep tabs. So I think there is a little bit of like they they can rule him out, but at the same time, they don't want to rule him out. And I think that had a lot to do with her family, Faith Hedgepath's family. Um, other little interesting tidbits about Eric. Uh, he lived in the same apartment complex of Faith and Karina Rosario. And uh, despite the personal protection order, he broke the door twice after locks were changed. Yeah. So that's crazy. This dude, yeah, this dude is, he's kind of a mess. I mean, uh, reading his, I mean, you can find out like a lot of people will break down like his personality profiles. Um, this guy seems like he's bipolar. I mean, the guy seems like he's a, and that's not like insulting. I'm just saying it seems like he has some mental issues, which actually, you know, it does target him a little bit, but he seems, you know, he's a very, he's a very emotional guy. And he's a guy that really wanted to be back with Karina Rosario and faith was kind of in the way of that as well. So Yeah. I mean, even just the, the Facebook quote or whatever he had posted or forgive me for all my sins and the sins I may commit. This line stood out to me though. Um, this line, protect me from the girls who don't deserve me and the ones who wish me dead today. So knowing his past, knowing that he has had a PPO taken out on him, a restraining order, you know, knowing that he has violated the restraining order probably multiple times, probably more than the two times that he broke their apartment door, forcing them to change the locks and get a new door. Mm-hmm. He was he was an abusive person. So of course, he's going to he's going to gaslight. He's going to say he thinks he's the victim in all of this. Like he doesn't see where he could have misstepped, how he could have mistreated women, how he could have used his anger for to just make people feel afraid and in and intimidated. I don't know, man. So, but he was cleared, right? Like he's a person of interest. So they think that he could potentially have been involved potentially, but they, it looks like they cleared him from the person who actually committed the murder. Right. And, and then, that was just by DNA. Yeah, uh, exactly. And that was just by DNA, which, Hey, good old DNA, right? It hopefully prevents the wrong people from going to prison. So then we have to talk about a third guy who is unknown as far as his name goes. I haven't seen his name in any of the articles that I have read, so I'm just going to call him Thrill Nightclub Guy. <laughs> mm. So he's a Durham man uh, whose name hasn't been released, but um, was reportedly last seen with Faith and at the nightclub. And when the police questioned him and showed him a picture of her they noted that he looked ashamed that was something that they noted a journalist picked up on it and and put it in the article and then just a quick note police took dna from all of the men or from the men who were at the nightclub that night but some were helpful and they readily just gave their dna and then others just flat out refused i said no fuck you police we are you are not taking our dna and i want to kind of go back to where the the police questions thrill nightclub guy. They show him a picture and then they note that he looks ashamed. I want to say that while that appears to be circumstantial, obviously that is not hard and fast evidence, but from a body language standpoint, it almost seems like perhaps either he wanted something to happen between him and Faith or something did. Like, for example, it could have been something like he smacked Faith's ass as she was walking to the girl's bathroom at the nightclub or, uh, you know, he wanted to get 
get jiggy with her on the dance floor and she flat out refused or, uh, you know, he could have had dreams about her or, mm-hmm. you know, it could be, I feel like it could be anything. Like there could have been a, a very small incident that had taken place between him and Faith, which would elicit looks of guilt and shame. Or he could just be a Catholic. <laughs> oh, I kid. But you know how like Catholics have that like inbuilt Catholic guilt? Maybe he had some Catholic guilt going on. Like you don't know. But I mean, I don't think just the fact that he looked ashamed looking at a photo necessarily makes him guilty, but definitely puts him on the suspect list. Yeah, absolutely. Now, those are the players in the case for the most part. And, you know, to date, none of them, I mean, while the police have talked to him, there's no arrests have been made. Uh, You know, I want to talk about the scene itself. They were able to conduct a DNA profile that was generated from the scene. Um, supposedly, it was semen collected at the scene. Investigators believe that the DNA belongs to Hedgepath's killer. We'll go into that in a second. But one of the key evidentiary evidentiary uh, evidence that they found, aside from the body, uh, the bloody rum bottle that they believe was the murder weapon, um, was a message written on a bag from a popular takeout restaurant in the area. The message read, I'm not stupid. Bitch jealous. Now, this was written. It, it was kind of sloppy, but you, I mean, I've seen, we both have seen the pictures, and, and the police did release what it is, you know, the bag of what was written. And it says, I'm not stupid, bitch jealous. Uh, the DNA found in the pen, I, 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 the DNA found in, in this room matches the DNA on the bag. Faith was beaten to death and raped, uh, unfortunately. Semen found on the scene with multiple DNA samples found and analyzed. To date, they have ruled out a lot of people from, I mean, they, they've tested people that were at the club. They tested people that were in their classes. They tested family, friends, and the semen DNS um, DNA matched uh, the DNA in the bag, like I said, and on a pen. There was DNA on a pen. There was also blood splattered in the closet door and the wall, indicating a very violent death. So whoever killed her, it was it was like a rage killing. I mean, it was she, they basically were mad at her. DNA taken from the scene, police analyzed it, came up with a sketch. Uh, the killer is a male of Native American or Latin American descent, so uh, essentially an indigenous person. Now that that's pretty crazy, uh, you know. I, talking about that a little bit more, this is a young girl, and she was sexually active. That we've heard, um, we've heard that her roommate was sexually active as well. So while they say the police are very confident that the semen and the DNA they found is of the killer, which all this another crazy aspect of this case is the infamous voicemail that was left, which we touched on a little bit earlier. Now, the voicemail was not recording during the time of the murder. It was said that it was recorded actually at the nightclub around 1.23 a.m. And the phone company and the police verified that the voicemail was not from 3.30 a.m. Even so, let's say that Faith and Karina were engaged in a fight because that is certainly how it seems in the voicemail, as though something went down at the nightclub. So a lot of people, the web sleuths, us, we all believe something, whatever was going on in that you know, you could hear music. I mean, it's a very hard voicemail to decipher. There's music playing in the background. Someone says that it sounds like somebody is rapping. And they were saying it's like, oh, you know, a lot of people who believe it was taking, you know, the voicemail is of her murder, which that's what her family believes to date. Her her brother, her sister, her, her mother and her father, they all believe that voice. Her father especially has came out and said that. He believes that voicemail captured the murder. It's hard, though, because there is rap music and he's and people and the police were saying that somebody's rapping in the background, like just one person they're rapping as they're killing her. 
And I was like, I don't know, man, because when I listen to it, it sounds like music music is playing, not like yeah. a professional rapper. So if there was a rapper that, you know, there, if there was somebody that was rapping as this was going, that person was incredibly talented. <laughs> like, oh, my <laughs> yeah. God. Yeah, um, right. I can rap and commit murder. Yeah, I mean, it sounded like, a, like a potentialite. Music. Yeah. Um, but it, but but I think you and I, it is so hard to decipher what that voicemail said. There's so much distortion. It sounded like it was in her pocket or somebody's coat. It was like covered. But it does sound like there is something happening, like a fight happening. And it sounds like it's in a loud place or the loud stuff is happening. And and going into the when it happened, I will say about the voicemail that there was a glitch in these sort of phones at the time. Yeah, I heard that. So the timeline may not even be as right. accurate. It- yeah, and there was a glitch in the in, in the system. Not just that night; it was just all around. They these sort of I think it was like a Motorola or a T-Mobile, and these sort of phones had glitches that screwed with the timestamps of calls and and voicemails. So, say you made a call at one thirty p.m., it will say you made a call at four o'clock that day or something. So, there is noted there is evidence to support that, but nothing where the police can take it as seriously. Yeah, I think that kind of there. I don't really know that. They- They're considering the voicemail, but they aren't really considering the voicemail. It's essentially, you know, one more piece of the puzzle that, of course, that they have. And I'm sure that the the police actually didn't initially even want the news that Faith had been raped as well as brutally murdered out there. But the family wanted to release that. The family wanted wanted that known that yes she was raped a horrible thing happened to her and we need to figure out what that horrible thing was and or we need to figure out who did that horrible thing yeah so one of the things that i kind of took from the 911 call that we played earlier and a lot of people want to lay this on karina and i can definitely see why it seems like maybe karina might have had the most motive and or opportunity especially if there's a guy involved and i would think one of two guys either there was some kind of a jealousy between or like a love triangle kind of thing between faith karina and brandon edwards or perhaps eric tacoy jones was initially involved i guess if you look at the voicemail and you you listen to the 911 call you have a lot more questions than answer because the 911 call was just kind of strange like the 911 operator had to do a lot to a lot of convincing to get karina rosario over to the bed checking her friend's pulse to see if a pulse existed, checking to see what was happening. Was her friend dead? Was she just unconscious? I think there was a snippet in the beginning of the voicemail where Karina says semi-unconscious, almost as if she's not certain if Faith is unconscious or semi-unconscious or dead. And Marisol Wrangle is there, but you don't hear her either in the background. Here's here's my thing, okay? And here's why I think Karina may be involved. I'm not necessarily saying that Karina was the one to swing the rum bottle and deal the final death blow. Clearly, she didn't rape Faith, you know, because semen was involved. So we know that a male did this. But let's say one of the things I think that makes Karina look suspect is there's a couple things. The first one is that the 911 operator really had to like encourage her, keep pushing her to go and physically touch Faith's body, physically look at it, physically determine if her friend was alive or dead. And I have to say, like, from my perspective, I mean, what would you do if you saw a friend of yours laying unconscious on the bed, t-shirt pulled up over their head, blood everywhere? I mean, 
I don't know about you, but I'd be racing over to my friend. I'd be checking the pulse. I'd be like, you know, like checking for breath sounds. I'd be like doing everything that I could to confirm what was the situation. Is this a 911 call? What is going on here? Obviously a 911 call, but could she still potentially be alive? But Karina didn't even want to go over there. It was like, you know, she touched her hand. She's like, the body feels cold. You know, she sounds like she kind of reverted into like a childlike state, you know, just the way that she's crying. She almost sounded scared, overwhelmed. I even thought maybe a little regretful. Maybe this is just what I'm picked up. But that was kind of how I saw it. Yeah. It almost felt like fake crying. I mean, listen, far be it from me to judge anyone's one's grief, but I just felt like there wasn't a lot of urgency. When, when it comes to the how people act over a phone call or you hear about this a lot in cases where the police will be because the police have to be very suspicious. Investigators, whoever does these kind of cases have to be very suspicious of every act, movement, anything. If you're breathing wrong, what have you. And you're right. It it, it does sound weird. I don't think I look. That's not what made her in my mind be like, she's suspicious just because it's, it's different. People have different emotions when, when big things happen or when, when sudden events happen. And like, I remember when our grandpa, died. I mean, I kind of had to like, when mom told me grandpa died, I had to like, I was very sad, but I couldn't like muster the tear. I almost felt like I was like, I was thinking to myself and I was really young. I was like 13 or 12. And I was like, should I cry? I didn't know how to act about him dying. So essentially I would be, I, I wanted to feel sad and I did feel sad, but I felt like I had to show that to mom just to kind of share that sadness with her. So, and then until I saw his, you know, in the funeral, I saw his body, then I started crying. So I think different people have a different state of emotions. There's shock. Sometimes shock takes over, you know, and then some people can't feel emotion because they're just like, they don't know how to feel or sometimes there's too many feelings. And I'm not saying that's what Korean did. And, but that's in my mind, that's not what makes her what that's not what makes her look guilty in, in my mind. I mean, there's other stuff for sure, but I don't think that is the thing that's like, Whoa. Well, while that may not stick out entirely, I think for me, I was I was really drawing a parallel to the events of the night. So one of the things that I thought was quite suspicious, well, there were a couple things. So one of the things that I thought was kind of suspicious was the event that happened at 2.06 a.m. where Karina wasn't feeling well. She had a stomach ache. So they decided to leave the nightclub. So we know from before that, that it only actually took them like 10 minutes to get from their apartment to the nightclub. So my question is, where were they for those 54 minutes? 54 minutes. She had a stomach ache. Did they go to the pharmacy? Did they get to some Pepto-Bismol? Did they, did she not feel quite like going home? I mean, I know for myself and, and I don't, maybe you're different, but if I don't feel well, I just want to go home and I want to snuggle up in bed and I just want to go to sleep. See, and all that, and we've both, you know, had our partying days. And I think what this comes to this, and this is what I think kind of solves what you're talking about. I think that's where the the fast food bag or the restaurant bag comes in. I think they went to go get her food. Now, when you are like drunk or where you are, now remember, this was an under 21 club. So either they did some pre-drinking or they were drinking somewhere around the club. I don't know. But eventually what happened, what I think happened was one of them was drinking too much or one of them was smoking or what have you. And sometimes the best, you know, like I know if I'm hungover, if I'm, you know, sometimes the best thing is to get 
some food into your system. Oh, and maybe that's where Faith was like, come on, girl, let's yeah. go. You're and not think feeling well. Let's think get that's, some food. And, and I think that's apartment. that's exactly it. I think they went to go get food or somebody got food for them. And then they came back to the apartment with the food. Now, the food, they don't really talk much about it, but it is known that that's probably what happened or that they did get foods earlier, maybe on their way home from the library. I don't know, but I think that's where the the bag of food comes into play. That's interesting. Well, now you did mention that they found the DNA on the pen. Sam- they found a DNA sample on the the bag. Yep. Along with that written message, which they actually thought that Faith wrote bitch jealous. I thought I read that somewhere that they thought that that yeah. part actually came from Faith and then the killer actually wrote the stupid or you think I'm stupid bitch or whatever. Yeah, and this is where I think this is what makes me clear Karina Rosario in my mind is like I don't know if like at first I always thought she did it. I'm like, "Oh, Karina Rosario, it's it's a slam dunk, right? She has something to do with her murder." But the more I look into this, the more I feel like and you and I have all seen so many cases of people trying to lead investigators away. I think that note's a deterrent. I think that note's trying to take the investigators in a different direction and maybe lay it on Rosario instead of of who might have done it and the bitch jealous thing. It just seems too like in your face. It yeah, too, it is. It does. You know what I mean? It's like two on the nose. Um, and I can see girls writing some bitch jealous or whatever on an in and out bag. I mean, come on, you're 19, you're 18, you know, you're drunk, you think stupid shit's funny. Like, yeah, and that could have been too, you know, maybe she was just like doodling or maybe she was, maybe they had a conversation and one was like, bitch jealous, you know, and you don't know. They don't think the handwriting came from Faith. And I, I, I think, you know, when you look at this case and you look at that, the no, I think the voicemail and the no are just very, I think that just, it's too, I don't know. I feel like those are things that take away from the case more than help the case. And it was so shocking when I first heard that voicemail, when I first heard, when I first know, knew about the bag, you know, the, the note on the bag, I was like, oh my God, that's right there. I mean, that's, that's evidence. But the more I look at it, the more I feel like that's leading investigators away from the actual case itself. Well, and I, and I mean, I, also know. intents and purposes, uh, unless Karina Rosario's DNA was found on the pen, the bag, and the semen, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I think it's pretty safe to say that, yeah, there are other options. That's definitely circumstantial, right? Where she's concerned. Yeah. The other yeah, part, I, the, the I, final I, thing that I thought was kind of suspect is that they, the girls knew enough to lock the door behind them right. when going to the library when going to the nightclub. But for some reason, Karina Rosario didn't lock the door behind her with her friend sleeping, supposedly sleeping, allegedly sleeping in the bed for the night. I mean, so we can chalk it up to her age. We can chalk it up to maybe she was drunk and forgot. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of stuff going on that night, right? Mm -hmm. So... Or that morning, I should say. So, you know, we can say that maybe she had forgotten. But boy, what a coincidence that on the night that she leaves to go with Jordan McCrary and Faith Hedgepath is is sleeping in bed, that the door is unlocked. And that somebody, some criminal, was like, Eureka, the door is unlocked. I can rape and pillage as I see fit. You know, like... yeah. That just seems weird to me, but maybe not so weird. I mean, it is yeah. easily explainable. It's easy it's yeah. easy to explain it away. Yeah, and that's why the I don't think the police are hung up on it um as much just because everybody 
like I've had roommates in the past when I used to have roommates um, back in the day, and there would be some that lock the door and some that don't lock the door, you know, I mean, and maybe when they went to the club the first time, maybe it was Faith that locked the door. Maybe she was the one that was always very like, she said, it seemed by the, by the profiles of each person, it seemed like Faith was more of the straightforward. Head on her shoulders. Yeah, she wasn't as flighty. She wasn't as, you know, she seemed like a little bit more responsible. So maybe that was something. I, I think it's more weird. That if if Karina Rosario wasn't feeling good, that she just left. Now, it could be she ate, she felt better, and she decided to leave. But it was just, you know, maybe she wanted to get a piece. I don't know what happened. But at the end of the day, I, I think that she her leaving I, it is a little weird because they went out. She wasn't feeling good. They came back to the apartment, whether they ate or not. I don't know if it's irrelevant or not, but they ate or chilled out. Faith wanted to go to sleep because they both were studying too. And then, you know, uh, before the whole club and, um, but Karina cut on wanting to go. And then by the time she came back to the apartment, it was like almost noon. That part to me is a little, a little different. Well, the other odd part too, is that at 3 AM, the lady that lives below them reported hearing what sounded like thumps and thumping. And so to me, that indicates that either they were drunk and stumbling around and falling and laughing and giggling. I mean, we don't know, right? Or it could have been that the neighbor below heard the murder of Faith Hedgebeth as it was happening. Yeah, I mean, that's very likely. I will say that when she was found, I mean, the t-shirt was pulled up over her head. I think whoever killed her knew her. Uh, her oh, family, yeah. be- her family believes that as well. We, me, you, and I be- both believe that. Her sister thinks her act. Her sister, her older, her older sister believes that the killer was somebody that was already been tested. Like she doesn't believe in the DNA clearance, you know. Which I think a lot of people are quick to like rule out people who, oh, the DNA doesn't match. They're not part of the case. I don't think I- I'm kind of one of those people. I think you know, once the DNA, it's like, yeah, they don't match, but it doesn't mean you necessarily didn't do it. Her her sister's on the same wavelength, where she's like, yeah, I. I think it's somebody they tested. I think it was somebody who knew her. I do too. And I think when they killed her, it was in such a violent manner that it was personal. And they say when people do kill people that they know or if they feel bad about the murder, they want to cover their face. And if she was kind of wrapped up, you know what I mean? Like with the comforter and everything that was going on, they wanted to cover her face. So I think putting her, putting a shirt over her face and her face down, I think that was to them. They felt bad about it. There yeah, that definitely indicates guilt and remorse. But then also, no, just the act of bludgeoning someone. You have to be quite in a fit of anger and rage to do that. I mean, where it's blood spilling everywhere, this was definitely a chaotic, disorganized murder. This wasn't pre-planned I believe that it happened shit. I even think that there was potentially some some issue between Karina Faith and Brandon Edwards that could have sparked a jealousy, you know, yeah. and then you have the whole Eric DeCoy Jones. Well, how does he fit in? I mean, shit. This guy had so much drama happening around him. You know, he was an abusive boyfriend and Faith was involved. I mean, she got in the middle of it to help protect her friend and try and guide her friend as a good friend would do. But who's to say that that didn't also then put a target on her back? You know, the other thing, too, is yeah. is the, the, the thrill nightclub guy. You know, who's to say that he didn't? follow the girls home and just get lucky that night and was able to go in. And, but then finally, I also want to say that rape, just the act of rape itself is a power move. This has really nothing 
it, it's almost like that final like release, you know, and, and wanting to get power over your victim. And that was something that, yeah, this was all about taking power over Faith Hedgepeth. This was all yeah. about taking power over her. And yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a few things too. the cops uh, held the autopsy report back from the family for like two years. To this day, they, there's a lot of information or there is information, whether it's a lot or little, we don't know, but they, they, they're they holding back a lot, which is normal with any, with any case we come across. Um, even, even they go, they went as far as to say that they weren't sure she was sexually assaulted, but they allude to it. The family didn't even know about this and they didn't even know about that note that was left in the bag for like two years. Nobody talked about that. So finally they, they kind of put the press on the police and the police, well, and then they had hand experts, handwriting experts, you know, kind of look into the, and I'm not saying that it's relevant because that's my initial things. I think that's taking away from the case and doing anything to it. But they had some handwriting experts look at the note and they said maybe they think it was wrote that was written before the murder, one. And two, which that would make it premeditated, the, the murder. And then there, the word emphasized stupid, you know, as being written in passion. Now, you can, you, you, it's, it's cryptic. Yeah. I mean, it's here nor there. I, I don't know. I have no idea. But I think. I think looking at Karina Rosario and Eric Decoy Jones is just too easy. Now the, the thrill nightclub guy, maybe, but to this date, the thrill nightclub is no more that, that, that club, it doesn't sit there anymore. The people who used to work there don't work at that place. It's a whole new business. So tracking that could be a little bit hard as well. So I don't know. I, I honestly, sis, I think I, I'm on the K I, I think it was somebody she knew either she slept with, or she knew in one of her groups, some of the groups in college, I mean, I think it was an opportunity that happened. I think they found the door unlocked. I don't think it was set up that it was unlocked. I think it was an opportunity. They've got her. They were waiting for her either A, to come home, or they followed her home from the club. And that person did know her. Know her and I think they took the, the opportunity to do what they did to her. And I think it's just they try to divert it with the, with the note by saying Karina Rosario. You know, it's a jealousy thing. It's perfect. It's a perfect setup. And to date, we don't know what it is, but I don't think it's as easy as saying Decoy Jones, Eric Decoy Jones and Rosic Karina Rosario did it. In my mind, the more I, at first I used to think that those two were always involved, but the more I look into this case, the more I don't think they're involved. One of the things that I think that is kind of odd, and I think that I think this is one of the pieces that the police is definitely holding back because the case is still actively being investigated today. Faith Hedgepeth's death is still actively being investigated. The FBI are involved. And I want to say there's like a $40,000 reward for, yeah, for, for, for helping them figure this out. But one of the things that I noticed that they are holding back from the public, from probably from her family, is the estimated time of death. And I think that if you have that information, that would almost be like the final piece of the puzzle falling in. But because they don't have that DNA match, it seems like that is where they sit. So everything else must be pretty circumstantial up until that point. I yeah. And, and DNA is, is huge. I think that's a lot of, you know, a lot of police when they go in and I'm no expert, but I think when they, when a dog gets a bone, they're going to they want that bone or if a dog sniffs something, you know, it's just like constant, you know, and I think for them, they they think everything links to the DNA. This case has a lot of similarities. I mean, there's this one case of Jane Britton. If you look back at Jane Britton and actually Redditors and people on Reddit actually helped solve that case. This happened in the sixties. She was murdered and raped and what have you. And and DNA finally linked the guy, but the guy 
wasn't in jail, wasn't in prison. They didn't know, kind of like this case, like, who is this person? We can't link this DNA to anybody. And then finally, it came out, it led to a guy named Michael Sumter later on. And he was like, he lived like a mile away. And he was like a serial rapist, but... It took forever for them to even come up with that name. Redditors helped and they brought the case more to light and the DNA ended up linking him late when they found out, okay, this guy might be involved. Let's link his DNA and boom, it happened. So I think when police look at cases like such as this, they think the DNA is the end all be all. I'm kind of on the assume, uh, I kind of side with the sister that the DNA, the people who have been exonerated or the people who have, you know, who have been crossed off the list because their DNA doesn't match I just, I'd wait before that. You know, what if she had sex with somebody that night at the club or after the club? Uh, you know or what I mean? Or during that time that she was gone from the library. I mean, she could have been hooking up with a boyfriend. Yeah, it's so hard to know. I'm not saying the DNA isn't the killers, but I think in a lot of cases, it's just so, it's a lot of cases, it's like DNA found, like semen found at a scene is very... It's rare and it's like a bonus. It's like, yeah, we got the semen. Let's match it. I don't know. I, I, it's just hard. She's young. She. I don't know. It's it's hard. It's it's a tough case. You know, I think the saddest part is that, like you had mentioned, that the Thrill Nightclub no longer exists. Um, it's 2021, mm-hmm. so that means nine years have passed yeah. since Faith Hedgepath's murder. Um, yeah. and they're still on it. The FBI is on it, like we mentioned before. Hopefully, they have little candlelight remembrances for her every year but i think it's just important to shine a light on this case you know with the victims i feel like we need to continue to keep them in our mind and we need to continue to talk about them and and to until their case is resolved yep and that's what we're going to continue to do with this podcast so if anyone has any information, they may call the investigators of this case, 919-614-6363. If you call this number, you will speak directly with one of the investigators assigned to the case and who are familiar with it. Thank you for joining us on episode one. If you found us entertaining, then please join us for episode two, where we discuss the missing child case of Briasia Terrell. Until next time, thank you and have a great day. See you guys.